Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A Napa guy knows the only way you'd give a freshly minted driver a brand new car is if he promises to never drive it. Instead, let him grind the gears and knock over the neighbor's mailbox in something a little more suited to his skill level. And with over 400,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, he can safely drive something that's nearly as old as he is. It's not perfect, but it's perfect for him. That's Napa know-how. This is your host, Daniel LaRue. Thank you so much for listening during our Thanksgiving week. We have two guests for you this week. We have Bob McChesney, who writes for RealGM.com, and Arturo Galetti, who writes for BoxScoreGeeks.com. First up, we have Bob McChesney. He writes under the name Elrod Enchilada for RealGM. His work analyzes strategies for GMs to use in building championship teams, and he wrote a six-part series on the importance of superstars for building NBA teams earlier this year. We reference it a lot. It'd be good to have it up. He also, for his day job, writes books about media and politics. His latest book is Dollarocracy, How the Money and Media Election Complex is Destroying America. We'll talk about sports for this one, and here we go. Thank you so much for coming on. My great pleasure. So we have, we're about a month in. What is your biggest takeaway from the season so far? You know, my, my primary, well, one thing, I think the Western Conference is filled with some really interesting teams that are contenders. Uh, the East, far less so. The, the weight of strength in the league, and just looking at the records, this is clear, uh, leans to the Western Conference. Uh, that there's, you know, there are going to be teams that miss the playoffs in the West who would look likely be uh, in the playoffs in the East. And in the East, you've just got right now a lot of teams that are struggling more than I anticipated. I didn't really expect Detroit to be having such problems. I didn't expect Cleveland and Milwaukee to be floundering, certainly not the Knicks uh, or Brooklyn. So I think that's the immediate takeaway, just looking at the standings and, and watching some of the games. Well, shift, but it doesn't seem like there are many likely avenues for that, at least in the near future. Well, I think for the next, for this season, at least, it's not shifting. For this season, Side really right now, I would say, with one, now that we have Jarek Rose's injury, you've got Indiana, 
and, and Miami in the East as legitimate contenders, and really no one else, I think, uh, is really a serious contender. Whereas in the West, you probably got, you know, those two teams in the East, Indiana and Miami, would rank in anyone's list of the top five teams or eight teams in the league. Maybe all the rest would come from the West at this point. And I don't see that changing this year. Now, that could change quickly next year. It could even get worse if LeBron heads West this offseason. It could you know, reduce the ranks of good teams in the East quite a bit. But then the other side of the coin is that the 2014 draft right now, at this point, and it could change, but right now at this point, looks like it's going to be the best draft at the top that we've seen in the NBA probably since 2003. Uh, and because of that, there is going to be, it looks like, a reshuffling of the deck uh, for the balance of the decade. And a lot of that will be determined by who gets the first three, four, five, six picks in the 2014 draft. Have to assume that at least given the, the the dearth of quality in the East, that at least a fair portion of those guys will go there, though we can't be sure, obviously. It will depend on the lottery, but probably odds are that, you know, I think right now you look at four to six really extraordinary players coming out in 2014, all of whom would have easily been the first pick last year. In fact, all of them would rank ahead of anyone in the last draft, and really there's only, they would have been the top you know, picks in almost every draft going back to 2007, except for you'd throw in a Griffin or a Rose. One of the pieces that you wrote most recently for Real GM, you wrote a series of pieces related to the superstar theory, and I was wondering if you could walk through that for um, for our listeners. I'd be glad to. You know, back around almost a decade ago now, I started writing for Real GM under the name Elrod Enchilada, and I did so uh, because I was, you know, I'm, I'm a Celtics fan. I've been following the Celtics since the Russell era uh, when Bill Russell was coached their last two championship teams in 68 and 69. And I've been intrigued with the way the Celtics continually were able to rejuvenate themselves and be contenders decade after decade. And by 2003, the Celtics had been in a very dark period for a good decade since Bird and McHale had left and Reggie Lewis had died. And they had really floundered under mismanagement. So I was really trying to figure out what it takes to uh, have a contender in the NBA. Why were they so far out in the wilderness? And why did it seem like they weren't getting any closer? And, uh, you know, I, I thought about it. And I realized that if you looked at, this is going again back in 2003, if you looked at the previous 25 years, the best player on those championship teams, there had only been like five or six guys. It had been Bird and, and Magic and Jordan and Shaq and Elijah on. Uh, and Duncan, if you you know those guys accounted for virtually every title except for the uh, two Piston titles. And with that in mind, I said, well, maybe this, there's something here. Maybe the key to winning NBA titles is having not just a bunch of good players like you have in baseball or football to have a championship team, but rather it really all comes down to having the best player in the game on your team or someone who's in the discussion for the best player in the game at the time. And I went back and began a process that culminated this year, 2013, in my most recent uh, version of what I call the superstar thesis or the superstar theory. And I looked at all NBA teams going back, seasons going back to 1955-56 when MVP voting first started. And I looked at who the best players were in all the championship teams, who the second best players were in all championship teams, and then who the best players were on the NBA runner-up, the team that lost in the finals, and then the two teams that lost the conference championship, so the final four, so to speak, of the NBA. 
figured that out for the last 60 years. Uh, and usually it's weren't really controversial decisions. Whenever it was close, like with the Detroit Pistons in the late 80s, whether it was Joe Dumars or Isaiah Thomas, who was the best player, whenever it was close, I just went by MVP voting, which just so it wasn't my opinion, but there was some sort of objective criteria. And then I looked at, I set up criteria to determine who the superstars in the league were using all pro voting, all defense voting, MVP voting. And what I came up with was that there was a list of really a handful of players who dominate NBA histories as universally regarded as the best players. And voting that's done after the regular season, before the playoffs wins. And these handful of players win all the championships. And the, and the evidence was so overwhelming compared to what anyone was saying at the time 10 years ago uh, that I kept pursuing it. And in the, in the most recent iteration, again in 2013, is the most detailed evidence I've come up with yet. And it's, it's overwhelming. And the point of the exercise was that teams that aren't about getting superstars, that aren't about getting a LeBron or a Kevin Durant or a Kobe or a Kevin Garnett, aren't seriously about winning a title. And for friends of mine, and I have close friends who are fanatical Knicks fans, for example, you know, it's a pretty depressing story. It basically says, Carmelo Anthony is a good player, but he's a Paul Pierce level player. You don't teams don't ever win NBA titles with guys like that as their best player. It just doesn't happen. Now, it might happen sometime in the future, but if you think you can peek out with Carmelo Anthony or Paul Pierce as the very best player in your team, you're never winning an NBA title. That's what the record shows us. You've got to go a notch above that. The NBA is very unlike you know in baseball. Or the NFL, and I'm a football fan and a baseball fan as well, but nowhere near as much. You know, you don't have to have the best player in the game to win a title. You know, Barry Bonds didn't win many titles. Barry Sanders didn't win NFL titles. They were the best players in the game during the heart of their career. It works differently in those sports. But in basketball, there's a ruthless logic that there's only a handful of guys in the league who uh, are good enough to carry teams to titles. And those are the guys who win all the titles. Not only do they win all the titles, they are the guys who get into the uh, finals in the first place. You know, the, even, even if you look, spread it out to just the final four every season, Danny, uh, the numbers are extraordinary. Uh, the teams that get even into the final four are invariably are led by guys who are, you know, in the top ten at least, usually top five in the league that season. And usually are guys who do it year in, year out. They're not fluke guys. They're, they're really the dominant players. And what this means, it really changes everything about how you think about how you rebuild a team. Uh, and we can go into that in a second, but I just want to say that when I started this 10 years ago, it was an outlier theory. It wasn't talked about a lot. And, one of, and I don't think it's necessarily because of my research, but I think now there's a, a dawning in NBA circles uh, and among serious fans about how this really is the central way to understand the key to being a great GM in the NBA today. Agreed on all counts. My my when I was when I was younger, my favorite stat on that was that I believe in the history of the MVP since that started, there have only been five or six teams, and only three of them were non-Pistons teams to win a championship without a player who had already won an MVP award. The crazy thing about that is that there are a lot of players, and one of those teams is a Celtics team before Bird won his first title. I think it was seventy. It was one of the one of the early teams, and it's just kind of an amazing thing because in a lot of sports, players win MVPs after they kind of become famous by winning titles. But in the NBA, there's this long history 
of players kind of paying their dues and being great players before they win championships. Michael Jordan's a really prominent example of that. And so there's a really interesting dynamic. And so you see guys like Jordan and LeBron who are known as great. And the question is, when are they going to break through? And then they do. Whereas in other sports, championships can be a springboard to that level of fame. Well, one of the great things about the NBA is that uh, it chooses its all MVP and its all NBA teams and its all defense teams. All the voting for that's done right after the regular season and right before the playoffs start. In other sports, they do that voting oftentimes after the championships and won, which is going to weight it then towards the guys who have great championship series, you know, uh, guys who are on the championship teams. When they do all the voting in the NBA, they don't know who's going to win the playoffs yet. So it's it's a for the purposes of the superstar study, it's ideal because you know it's not weighted uh, circular argument uh, that, that accounts for who wins all the championships. And when you look at these figures, like you were saying, the superstars in the NBA, what's striking about them is that almost always, you know, by the time they're 21 or 22, you know, by 25, every case who's going to be a superstar, you usually know by 21 or 22. Paul George, who's now entering his fourth season with Indiana is a marginal superstar, and he's still young enough he could become a dominant player. It's, the jury's still out, but it's not out for long. I mean, he's really at the end of the tether. We're going to know, uh, as we will with James Harden by the end of this year, whether they're the real deal, whether they can be the best guy in a championship team, or whether they're one notch down. They're clearly guys who rank in the top 50 or 100 in the league in all likelihood in league history. But whether they're that special guy who can carry a team to a title that, the jury's out on that one. The jury's only in in the NBA right now in a handful of players, uh, and most of those guys are, are past their prime. The guys in their prime that I don't think the jury's out on right now really are, are LeBron James and Kevin Durant, uh, and then the other guys are all you know deep in their years. And that's going to be a major factor in terms of figuring out who's going to win. Let's say LeBron goes somewhere this summer or next in, in 2014 that's a little bit behind developmentally where he is now. Then will somebody else step up or will that open the door for Durant in a more direct way? Well, you know, it will depend on the teams, obviously, and the players and how they go. I mean, there's, you know, I should add that it's not just those two guys. I mean, Chris Paul, Dwight Howard, by this criteria that I use, certainly are, are very much, you know, if they were the best, if the Clippers and Rockets won titles with them as the best players this year, that would be what my theory would expect. Because these guys, if you look at the numbers, they're really high-ranking players. They're, they're a notch below Durant and, and James, but they're they're the top 25 players in league history already. So, uh, you know, they're qualified to win titles by the theory. They, so we'll see. Uh, I don't want to restrict it to Durant and James, but those are clearly the two best players in the game by the criteria I, I use in the study. And, um, you know, the surrounding cast is important, though. Once you get to that level... One of the other things the superstar theory projects is that having multiple players makes a big difference. Your cast is important. Just being the best player with a bunch of clones around you, you won't get it done. And what's striking about so many of the superstar teams is they not only have a superstar, what really puts you over the top and makes you dominant teams when you have a second player or even a third player who ranks among the 10 best players in the game at the time or the top 15 players. And when you go through NBA history, what's striking is how often championship teams meet that criteria. And some of the, the dynasty teams are the teams that really are stacked with 
a number of superstar players, like the 60s Celtics were a classic example, or even just, you know, the Bulls having, you know, Jordan and Pippen, or the, the Lakers after that with Shaq and Kobe. You know, when you get the best player in the game or top two top five players in the game on a team, those teams almost always get to the finals and usually win championships. Because there are very few of those teams in the league at any given time. You can only have so many guys in the top five. And so multiple players is key. And how this answers your question, Danny, is you look at a team like Oklahoma City, and Bill Simmons has you know, been you know, losing his marbles over that James Harden trade that was done by Oklahoma City last year, and for good reason. Had Oklahoma City kept James Harden and basically suffered the salary consequences under the new CBA, the luxury tax consequences, every bit of evidence suggests that unless Russell Westbrook gets seriously injured and is, is no longer a top player, he goes through what appears, unfortunately, Derrick Rose is going through that had they kept Harden, Westbrook, and Durant on one team, you would have been entering uh, NBA waters virtually uncharted, except perhaps for the 60s Celtics. But even then, I don't know if you quite got there. And it would have been a team that in all likelihood would have been stacking up uh, NBA championships and certainly been in the finals for the next decade. So by getting rid of Harden, they're still a great team. They can still win a lot of titles. They, they lower themselves a notch uh, from you know almost certain superstar to a championship team and perennial contender to possible championship team. The, uh, the difference is night and day. And what this gets to, and it's another point the superstar theory gets at, is that in the NBA, there's a law that's sort of an iron law, which is if you have a trade in the NBA, whoever gets the best player wins the deal. It's not that way in football or baseball. In baseball, you could trade a great player and get back four really, really good players and young players who will have long careers, and it pays off for you. Uh, in fact, baseball's filled with trades like that. And the NBA never works that way. And the NBA, whoever gets the best player, always wins the deal. And so when you trade away James Harden, whoever you trade him to is going to win that trade unless you're going to get back Chris Paul or someone of that caliber, uh, someone who's you know top five player, Paul George possibly. And when you trade him for a bunch of guys and future draft picks and you hope the draft picks are high picks, the odds are you're going to get hosed. And Oklahoma City got hosed. And the other factor in that is that by creating a team that's a tier down, you reduce the likelihood that all of the other key players are going to stay because if you have an unquestioned championship team, it's really hard for guys to walk away from that. But if, let's say, in three years, Oklahoma City still has not won a championship, it makes it more possible or easier, whichever you want to say, for a guy like Durant or Westbrook later than that to, to walk away from it. You lose that guy, and also you lose something else. One of the things the Heat has taught us, and they've got three max contract guys, so they really can't take on much more salary, even if the owner's you know, willing to blow money in the, the luxury tax. But one of the things the Heat taught us that would have applied to Oklahoma City, still does to some extent, but definitely would have applied had they kept Harden, where you know, you've got three max contract guys had they kept Harden, and then you've got a Baca. So you've got four guys you're committed to, but you're going to put you in luxury tax land even before you pay any other salaries. You're going to be contending and winning titles every year, so you're going to be able to do what the Heat uh, uh, have been able to do, which is you're going to get a lot of really good guys at the end of their career who want rings who will play basically for a minimum or a very low amount of money just so they can round out the roster and get a couple flags. And that's what they could have done. And that's really, I think, the logical way you go in the current 
uh, CBA if you're a general manager. You pay whatever you have to pay to get your superstars. And if you get one, you never give your superstar up. You don't give up your Hardens. And then you round out your roster with a lot of minimum wage chumps. It's better to have James Harden and three minimum wage guys than it is to have get rid of James Harden and have three or four guys making $5 million each. It's just That's just the way it works in the NBA. That's the That's how the system is for the sport. Well, and that's also facilitated by the by the possibility and the existence of individual maximum contracts because systematically the guys in the NBA who are underpaid are maximum quality players and players on their first NBA contracts. That's right. So and guy and guys on the minimum if they're better than the minimum. So you know if if a Chris Anderson's going to take the minimum, that's a good value as well, and that fits in with the theory as well. Yeah, the max contract uh, really changed the NBA in a lot of ways and, and changed being a GM, and it, it had unintended consequences. And perhaps the biggest unintended consequence of when they added the max contract to the CBA, you know, back in the late 90s, I think, in that CBA, one of the unintended consequences of the max contract was that teams no longer had the capacity to keep players by overpaying anyone else as much as it took. Uh, basically, other teams could pay you as much as the home team. So players could move a lot easier. It wasn't really understood at the time what that would do, that it would make it, you know, the Larry Birds and Magic Johnsons of the 80s under the old system really were never going to leave because whatever any other team could play, the Lakers or the Celtics could outpay them, or the Bulls in the case of Jordan, by $20 million a year if they needed to, to keep the player. So the player always had economic incentive to stay with the home team because of what was called the bird rule. Well, with the max contract, that bird rule uh, doesn't have the same effect. Guys, basically, LeBron James got the same money in Miami as he was going to get in Cleveland. And that's opened up the door to superstars moving around, and it's changed the way we think about how great teams are built. Uh, the draft was basically how you got someone. You know, you basically got your guy in the draft, and once you got him, you never let him go unless he demanded a trade, and you had to trade him because he would refuse to play, or you just, you just for whatever reason, you, you, you had to get rid of him. But you, usually, you got a superstar, and you never let him go, and you got him to the draft, and that's changed now. You can get him to the draft, and if you get someone to the draft, you keep them. But because of the, the, the max contract rule, the Chris Pauls of the world, the Dwight Howards of the world are much more likely to move around until they get a team they like uh, where they're happy uh, than would have been the case prior to the 1998 or 1999. The way that I've interpreted that, I actually have a piece which now I'm more incentivized to write before this comes out. I had it writing in my head is that I think that what the other change that this has done is it's made their to be different rules for different size markets. So I think now you have a situation where if you're kind of a lower end market, the two ways that you can get an elite player is through the draft or you can get a James Harden situation where you can you can trade for a guy who for whatever reason is undervalued, but for that you need to accumulate the right kind of assets. But if you're a higher a higher end media market or however you want to see it, you can build a team like the way Houston did it, where you get one good player and then you have enough talent to get the second, or you can do it through cap space like Miami did. But that avenue is not available to every team. So it's created kind of different strata in terms of how GM should conceive of their team. You know, I'm not so sure it's about market size per se. I think it's about market location makes a big difference. Players want to play in L.A., Players want to play in Miami because they like the weather. And in the case of L.A., they like hanging out with superstars and movie stars and celebrities. Uh, and that gives those cities a great advantage over cities that aren't in nice weather. 
And I think that it's more that than the size of the market. I think Orlando could take advantage of that, too, if it was seen as a hipper place uh, than it is. And maybe Phoenix certainly could as well because it has great weather in the winter. I, I think also be, uh, basketball is not like the and uh, Major League Baseball in the sense where market size means everything because revenues are so locally driven and there's no salary cap. Because of the salary cap, and the, let's face it, the owners host the players in the last CBA. Uh, they got a great deal. They got all sorts of givebacks. And as a result of that, because of the salary cap, it's pretty hard for an NBA owner to lose a lot of money unless they're really a knucklehead. If they've got a good product, they're going to sell a lot of tickets. I don't think the disparate difference between a smaller market, a San Antonio, a Portland, uh, an Oklahoma City, and a large market is anywhere near as great for how it affects the product on the field in the NBA as it is certainly in baseball. And it's, and it's non-existent in the NFL because they all their revenues are national. They're not locally based, and they're split evenly. It's a socialist organization for the owners. So um, I'm, I don't. I think it's the physical location is the key uh, more than anything else in, in the NBA. So being in LA makes a huge difference. Being in New York should make a huge difference because players generally want to play, live in New York, and play in New York and get the publicity and the, and the side benefits that come with it. Uh, and I think that is the problem right now. And I'm a Celtics fan, and I don't think there's people lining up to live in Boston in the NBA. There's some who go there for the tradition. But on balance, if you've got a choice and you're in a superstar, everything else being equal, and your choices are Boston, Detroit, Chicago, Miami, or L.A., Miami and L.A. are going to get much more attention. Another difference in that, that between baseball and basketball that isn't discussed enough is the difference in terms of when you play in terms of time of year. When a player is thinking about where they're going to play, that's where they're going to be during the winter months, but then they can spend the summer months wherever they want to be. So that's a difference between, let's say, a, a cold-weather mid-market like Washington, D.C., and somewhere like Orlando, which uh, is, is a, I believe, a smaller city geographically, but has way better weather during the time of the year that a player is going to live there. That's right. And so that is a factor. Now, what it means is the degree of difficulty for northern cities is higher. And I'm a Celtics fan, as I said, and, you know, they have really bad weather in the winter as a rule. And that's true of the upper Midwest cities, the Twin Cities, Chicago, Milwaukee, Detroit. They have the same, they're in the same boat. Uh, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. Again, player, you know, if you get a great player and you have a well-run franchise, uh, the Bulls, uh, I don't, you know, when they had Jordan and Pippen, uh, they could win a lot of titles. Uh, Detroit's won titles when they were a very well-managed team. Uh, you know, Cleveland's been a mismanaged team as a rule, and they, you get the result of a mismanaged team. The Clippers are mismanaged in L.A. I don't think it's an insurmountable barrier. It just raises the degree of difficulty. And the other factor, I have a piece that's coming out on this, is that I think that there's a different a different margin for error for the teams in the major, in the it, like if you want to call it the major markets, the most desirable markets. And what's interesting to me is that this could be a major shift in terms of the Lakers if the Lakers get the perception of being a more poorly run organization after Jerry Buss's passing. That could really change the dynamics because for a long time they've benefited from being the sanest of the big organizations of let's say let's call it the big of uh, the Lakers, the Clippers, and the Knicks. But now if they if that perception changes, whether or not even the reality does. That could be a really interesting dynamic in terms of superstars. Yeah, I mean, you, their aura of their empire, which has been extraordinary since the 1960s, even 50s, if you go back to Minneapolis, uh, will carry for a while. And they're in L.A. and they've got everything going for it. And, you know, but it will die if they don't get their act together. If they don't 
you know, turn it around relatively quickly, they can stagnate. And they face the dilemma that in their exact same building, in the exact same city, the Clippers are there now with one of the top five players in the game and in Chris Paul and a guy, you know, in the top 10 or 15 probably in Griffin. And they're young and they've got a great coach. And they finally, their owner, who I think went down as one of the biggest morons in sports history for a long time, is at least staying out of the way long enough to let the team run. Uh, the Clippers, to a veteran player, is going to look are going to look a lot more attractive than the Lakers, assuming the Lakers don't uh, turn it around fairly quickly. Now, having said that, Dan, the Lakers could turn it around, and I I'm not a Laker fan, but I respect them mightily and admire them. Uh, their current management, I think, though, does not breed a lot of confidence. They completely bungled the uh, Dwight Howard situation. Uh, I think they squandered draft picks on Steve Nash in a way that I didn't make a lot of sense to me. I think they were sort of it was it was the sort of stuff I don't think Jerry West would have ever done uh, were he running the show. And they normally were just brilliantly managed uh, right through the Paul Gasol trade. I had nothing but respect. They were they were truly a, a worthy adversary. But I think now you know they they bundled those things. And it's unclear to me if they're going to play their cards right. But they are in a great position. You, you know, you probably know this. If you look at the Lakers, they only have one contract on their books uh, after the season. That's the last year of Steve Nash's deal. Uh, now, they, that doesn't mean they, they have nothing on the cap. It's more complicated than that. But they would be in a position if they renounced every option on their team to more or less go out and sign two max contract guys and then round out the roster. So they could turn it around if they want almost overnight. And if they're able to pull it off and being based in L.A., they will have that opportunity. Yeah. And what's going to be a really big test for them and potentially for the Knicks in either in 2015, presumably, depending on what happens, is to resist the temptation to fill out the roster cap wise with players that aren't that that limit their flexibility to get that true max guy. If, let's say, LeBron and Carmelo or whatever combination of that. Well, I wouldn't even include Carmelo in that superstar class if LeBron goes elsewhere. Because let's say let's say that LeBron stays in Miami or goes to Cleveland and then the Lakers sign Carmelo, who I think we both agree isn't in that same superstar class, then they're really lowering their ceiling long term. I couldn't agree more, and that's such an important point. And you see this over and over. This is really the, you know, I understand that general managers, you know, they've got pressure on them to produce a team in the here and now. They don't have the luxury, like I do as a fan or as an observer does necessarily, to say, well, hold off, be willing to, like, be patient for two or three, four more years. But the tragedy or the truth, however you want to put it, of the NBA is the rational thing, if your goal is actually to win an NBA title, Certainly, seriously contends so you are an honest contender, if not win. You're in the you're in the first tier, so you're getting a superstar. It demands you have that patience. It's a fool's gold to take. Say, okay, I couldn't get LeBron. I'll do the next best, and we'll just hope we get lucky. You won't get lucky. You'll just lose, and you'll de- you'll defer any chance for another generation to have a championship. So, for example, I mean a classic example of a team that has blown it routinely in the last five or six years has been the Detroit Pistons. You know, Joe Dumars, you know, granted, he did some great things as a GM, and I won't even hold the Darko draft pick against him because I'm not a Piston fan. If I was a Pistons fan, I would hold it against him. Uh, but, you know, he had a lot of cap room, which he built up, and he squandered it in '09 on Charlie Villanueva and Ben Gordon. I mean, just ridiculous picks. If you're going to take your cap space you've got 
and you sign two guys and you're still nowhere near being a legitimate contender, but you've just sort of swallowed up like huge amounts of your salary cap for four or five seasons, that's stupid. And you know, that's what he did. And I think the Knicks, they, and then this last year, they did the same thing with Josh Smith. Now, that might pan out if you're rolling the dice and thinking Andre Drummond's going to become a super-duper star and be, you know, within two or three years is going to be a first-team All-Pro. Well, maybe signing Josh Smith to that deal makes a lot of sense. But if Andre Drummond doesn't, then you've just tied up a lot of cap for a guy that really there wasn't huge demand for around the league. I mean, he's a much better version of Charlie Villanueva, but he's still not the guy who's getting you to the finals in the league or to a championship. So it's short-sighted again. And the Knicks are another great example of this exact process. In 2010, they were hoping to get LeBron. They didn't get him. So they signed Amari. And then so they'd have room for Carmelo. I think this was the reason, or another max contract guy. They let David Lee walk uh, rather than re-sign him for which would have, for would have been much less than a max contract. And, uh, you know, it's easy to say this in retrospect, but, you know, Nothing they did that year suggested they were going to be winning an NBA title. Uh, as much as, you know, Amari, I respect and admire as a player, his, he was, even at his peak, wasn't quite necessarily the guy who was going to win a title. In, in his best seasons with Phoenix, he wasn't getting them remotely close to an NBA championship. And if he's the best guy on your team, you're probably not going to win. And then you looked at his health issues. I mean, he had you know serious health issues before the Knicks signed him. And then signed the guy to a five-year, you know, hundred million-dollar deal. It was you know tying up your cap basically. If he doesn't pan out, you're cooked. And then they compound it by desperately like you know drunks at a bar before closing time, making that Carmelo trade. And if they had the patience to wait three or four months, they could have gotten him without giving up two number one picks, without giving up Gallinari, without giving up Wilson Chandler and all this other stuff they gave up to get Anthony. The whole thing reeked of really uh, not having a very serious, well-thought-out strategy to actually win a title. They were happy basically to go 52-30 and and have Woody Allen and Spike Lee high-fiving each other, but they weren't serious about winning a title. Then on the opposite side of that, presumably you have Houston, who designed everything around. They got I, I I talked about this last week with somebody and got the idea that they got they got lucky in some senses. But I've always said that, as John Wooden said, that success is where preparation meets opportunity, and that that's exactly what Houston did in getting Harden and then having the space to get Howard. Absolutely. I mean, Daryl Morey is just you know he is at the top of the list of great GMs in the league. And there's a handful of them. Uh, and, you know, the way you judge GMs are two ways. It's you're in two states in the NBA, either a contender with a superstar or you're a non-contender trying to get a superstar. As a GM, those two things define what, how you view the world. And until you get your superstar, everything you do is based on are you putting yourself in the position to maximize your opportunity to get one? If you're not, if you're doing what Joe Dumars is doing and signing a bunch of mediocre guys and using your salary cap so you're going to you know, basically be a middle-of-the-pack team or doing what Milwaukee has done along those lines for years, then you're a joke as a GM, in my opinion. You're not doing your job right. And Daryl Morey, and I think Danny Ainge gets credit for this, and Jerry West used to get credit for this, you know, when he doesn't have his superstar, Daryl Morey spent everything, every move was all about ending up with James Harden and Dwight Howard. He was creating space. Uh, he was not squandering money on guys. He was making it possible to be in a position to get the guys. It wouldn't guarantee he got them, but he was willing to wait, too. He wasn't going to rush out and say, gee, I've been here three years. I better 
you know, make the playoffs next year in the fifth round so my owner will like me and the fans will be happy. He was willing to take the risk of taking time, and it's paying off for him, and, and more power to him. It, this, it took a little bit of luck and good fortune, but as you said, he put himself in the position to be lucky and have good fortune. And by the way, Houston is not much of a city uh, as far as American cities go. People aren't going to Houston. They might like the weather, but, you know, they better keep their eyes closed otherwise. <laughs> and the other part of this that I think is becoming a greater factor in recent years is the factor of ownership itself. And I think we've seen with teams like New Orleans and Milwaukee, you talked about them previously, that in sometimes those limitations don't actually come from the GM. They come from ownership. And when ownership says, we need to be a contender, we need to do that now, and the GM cannot convince them, hey, we need to wait, you get a situation like what happened in New Orleans where they uh, where ownership says we need to compete right now, and then the GM just kind of has to go along with it, and you get a, a lower ceiling than they could have had had they waited and built assets. That's right. It, it does come from the owner, and if you've got an owner who doesn't get it, you've got an owner who says, you know, and again, I think most owners, like most sport fans, and certainly I'm, I'm a, you know, most NBA fans, but it's changing now finally, fortunately, you know, the logic has always been, well, teams should get incrementally better, like a baseball team or football team. You know, and you go from being a last place team, you get young players and you, you get aging. And over two or three years, you get gradually better. You make the playoffs and finally you might win a title. That's always been the thinking. So the, the step from getting from where you are now to winning a title is getting gradually better. That's the logic. And I think a lot of owners have that. So if you're not getting gradually better, they can't figure out that maybe you're going to be a lot better, though, by being smart in the near term, in the short term. And that penalizes some teams. And I think you've given a couple of examples. It's certainly been a problem in Milwaukee where they've had no coherent plan whatsoever, as far as I can tell, uh, for their organization, really, since Don Nelson left and maybe even before that. But it's been a good 20, 25 years. They're floundering. And, and it sounds like, from what I can read, that, that can be attributed to the ownership uh, and the guidance that comes from uh, former Senator Cole, who owns the team. Uh, <clears throat> fortunately, you know, smart owners, and I'm lucky as a Celtics fan, we have very smart owners now, um, you know, are willing to say, you know, we'll take our time to get it done done right. So when we finally do regroup in two, three, four years, we'll regroup with a superstar and a chance to actually be a contender for five, ten years. And Danny Ainge, I should say, uh, you know, who is Daryl uh, Morey's you know, mentor, brought him into the NBA, clearly gets the superstar thing. And the way he was able to take a really godforsaken roster with no cap room and just bungled draft picks for a decade before he came there in 2003, and four years later convert what he had, and never really having any high lottery picks to speak of, and converted into a team that, you know, won an NBA title around Garnett and Pierce and came went to the seventh game another year it was really masterful GM work. The Celtics in a lot of ways are some of the prototypes of that because of how they how they built it with a different kind of asset. And the the challenge with that and we'll see how they do with that is that you have to in some ways as much as you you don't necessarily need to get the superstar through the draft as Houston didn't but you need to get assets that you can use to either woo or acquire a superstar. That's right. You need assets, and usually it really helps to have cap space. It helps to have cap space so you can take a guy in without having to uh, force another team to take players they probably don't want, which is usually what you'd have to do. So having that cap space made it possible for Houston to get 
uh, Dwight Howard without having to make any sort of deal whatsoever with the Lakers. They just, you know, they didn't have to do a sign and trade. They just basically gave him a deal and he said goodbye to the Lakers. And so cap space is much more important than it used to be, which is why squandering money on these sort of, you know, five-year or four-year, $20 million, $30 million deals and guys who are just going to make you marginally better but not get you over the top, those deals really smell like month-old fish out on the counter right now. You know, they were, back in the 90s when you didn't have that issue, cap space wasn't so imperative before the max contract, signing a bunch of those guys made perfect sense if they helped you win a few more games, especially if you were a champion or a contender. But now those deals look really bad, and I think that's where you're going to see a lot less of those deals going forward. We already are. Well, and you're, and, but you're seeing that there are enough that a guy can get. I, the, the deal I'm thinking of is Al Jefferson, where all, you, all a player really needs is one team, and so if there are enough teams that are not with it, then those players, if they, if what they want, you know, those players who aren't deserving of the big contracts but are deserving of money, they'll find one team. And so then what, it, what it'll do is it'll just kind of separate out the teams that are really in it for a championship and the teams that might have the best intentions but don't have the execution to get there. Yeah, now that's a good example, Charlotte, because uh, that's a team that is, you know, made some of the most lunkhead, bonehead draft choices like Adam Morrison. Granted, that was a bad year. But, you know, they never really had much of a vision uh, going into what they were trying to do. And eventually it's a team like the Clippers where, you you know, you're going to luck in. And again, perhaps to some extent it's because it's been such a uh, uh, such an unsuccessful franchise that uh, Jordan felt that he had to basically get a more competitive team on the floor just so he can actually make enough money to, to pay his bills then the Jefferson signing makes sense. But if, in fact, he thinks that's going to get them close to winning a title, I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that. Al Jefferson's a, a fine player, a good player, but he's a, a backup. He's got weaknesses in his game, and he's never going to be you know, a first or second player on, on a contending team. For Charlotte, ultimately, they need to have – they're not going to win a title – unless they have someone join their roster who's better than anyone that's currently on it. They need a superstar. And for Charlotte right now, uh, you know, that means either creating cap space, so maybe you can make a pitch for one down the road if you've got an attractive enough young team. And secondly, that means for Charlotte getting a high lottery pick, which is for them more likely where they're going to get it. And they're sort of not a very good team, so they're poised to get such a, a player if they play it right. By getting a guy like Jefferson, they swallow up cap space. They make the team better. He certainly will help them win more games, and it makes it less likely they're going to end up in the in the lottery. Now, most years, and this is a point worth talking about, most years playing for a high lottery pick really is fool's gold because, you know, last year, what are you going to get? Anthony Bennett? I mean, there's no one out there really worth who's going to be a superstar. And in recent years, you know, you might get Anthony Davis, possibly Kyrie Irving, but that's about it in the last five years. If Paul George was there, he was, you know, a, a sort of a, in the middle of the first round or late lottery. But, you know, there's sort of, there are guys worth tanking a season per se. 2014 right now, and it could change, uh, but everything I'm seeing right now suggests this is the sort of year where, boy, if you can somehow get a top three, five, even top six pick, but certainly top five, there's a chance it could pay off extraordinarily well, much like the teams that finished the top five in 2003, except, of course, for the Detroit pick. What I'm, what I'm thinking about uh, is, a, is a really interesting thing is also that if you take the guys that we think of as the superstars in the league right now, 
how so many of them were incredibly hyped more than a year before. Because you think about there are some guys who, you know, Anthony Davis was had some press as being a potentially great player, but it came sooner. But guys like LeBron, we knew more than a year before that he that there was a very good chance he was going to be special. Tim Duncan's the same thing. So it's interesting that the guys who were the clearest examples for a team to theoretically tank for actually in recent years particularly have worked out pretty well. You know, one of the things I do in the research uh, and, and the stuff that's published in Real GM under the name Elrod Enchilada, I think it was in August, is I look at the first time uh, a superstar makes the All-NBA team. And what's striking is that most of these guys are first-team All-NBA by the time they're 23 or 22. I mean, again, uh, this is not, you know, Al, Jeff- Al Jefferson is their old, and, and I'm a fan of Big Al in a lot of ways, but he doesn't become first-team All-NBA at age 28 or 29. You know you've got the real deal really early in a person's career. The better the player, the earlier you know as a rule. And so uh, there's no mystery, really, about it. And that's why this draft, 2014, right now looks so exciting, I think, for fans. And someone, if you've got a bad team that might get in the lottery, because the performance of guys like uh, Wiggins to some extent, and Randall and Parker, and then this uh, Australian kid, Exum, uh, Marcus Smart at Oklahoma State, and possibly Joel Embed, the uh, seven-footer at Kansas, these guys are all showing signs of being the sort of guys who could be career first-team All-NBA type players. They might, most of them, they won't be all of them, because there's not enough room in the team. But there, we, in other years, we've had no one who looked this good. Uh, now we've got four or five, maybe six guys who fill that description. This is the sort of year that, you know, <laughs> you want your team to have one of those guys. Because they aren't, it won't be this way for the next five years necessarily. There might be one or two guys, but this is, looks like a fluke year. Yeah, and it's and it's going to be exciting because it'll it, it's rare to have the situation where it's pretty clear that the balance of power just overall in the league has the possibility of shifting, and we definitely have that going into this summer, both in terms of the draft and in terms of LeBron James, because LeBron James is the player single, the single player most likely to swing championships over the next five years. Yeah, James is where he goes is instantly the number one contender, except possibly for Oklahoma City or maybe. Houston. And again, I'd have to put the Clippers in there, too, because I have immense respect for Chris Paul uh, as a superstar. And, you know, so I think all those guys are in in the game. But James is the best player in the game today. He's uh, in the conversation, I think, with Jordan and Bill Russell. Uh, He will be for best player of all time. I mean, he's I think those three right now are sort of a notch above everyone else. Well, thank you so much. Is, th- is there anything else you want to talk about? No, I'm, I'm cool, Danny. Um, it's great talking to you. And uh, anytime you want to chat some more, my pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks again to Bob for coming on. Next up, we have Arturo Gluddy, who writes for BoxScoreGeeks.com. We talk about Derek Rose's injury and the impact it has on the Bulls, Kobe Bryant's contract and what it means for the Lakers, as well as a discussion on the Spurs, a team that I feel has been under-discussed and underappreciated considering how beautifully they've been playing conversation runs for about 45 minutes hope you enjoy it so thanks again to Arturo Galetti for coming back on the show it's nice to be back there are a lot of big stories that have come up in the last couple days and we'll get to all that but before all that I wanted to see we talked before the season what your biggest takeaways so far have been from the whole month of basketball that we've already seen I, I think what's interesting to me is that the good teams are going to be really good and the bad teams are going to be really bad and I think that's a function of kind of the way the league is set up right now. So, 
you know, when you watch these games, San Antonio, for example, is playing, going out there and just, they're not just beating people, they're destroying people, you know, they're, you know, when a bad team shows up, you know, they're, they're taking them out by 20 points in the first half and then just kind of letting them, you know, hang around by just playing the B team and not playing that hard. But there's going to be a real divide between the good teams and the bad teams. And it's going, to need, it's going to lead to some very ugly, non-competitive games. And I think that, more than anything else, is what's going to lead the league to eventually fix the whole thing with the draft. Because I think it's, 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 it's bad basketball. I think the other thing that's going to be really interesting is there's a real shot that this could be the first season ever where the Lakers, Knicks, Celtics, and Nets all miss the playoffs. That's never actually ever happened for the NBA. Not once since the league started, so that's that's not something that the league wants. So, and again, that's another thing where I think uh, they're, they're going to have to kind of look at what they did, and you know, they they really did succeed in making a more competitive league because like the, those big market teams don't have the advantages they used to anymore. It's a very different NBA world if the only team from the two biggest markets that makes the playoffs is the Clippers. Yeah, that's that's kind of insane. I mean, I think. You know, and, and again, I think it's a function of, one, the way the the, uh, the CBA went down, and I think it's a function of the fact that, like, you know, some of these teams have been competitive. Some of them are, you know, trying to rebuild, and some of them are less competitive than they used to be. You know, you know there I'm talking about the Lakers specifically. Yeah. I wrote a piece that just went up today about how I think that there's a really interesting dynamic going on that all of the teams in major markets right now have flaws in terms of something related to their front office. The Clippers obviously have Sterling, so that's a problem. The Knicks have been mismanaged for decades now, and the Lakers have lost their aura of Jerry Buss and how they were you know, so magnificently run for so many years, whether or not every decision was agreeable. And then we don't know what's going on with the Nets and how that could really shift the league long term because – They've always had this huge competitive advantage, which they could at least partially give away now. Well, I think the thing with the with the Lakers, and I and I wrote, well, I wrote about the COVID piece, obviously, and and, and here's the thing: they, it reminds me a little bit. I compared this to when the Red Sox refused to integrate, and the reason I said that was because the Red Sox kind of because of the way they were structured and because of their owner, they gave themselves an un, they they put themselves in a position not to compete by doing something that was a competitive disadvantage because of a choice they made. And I think at this point, like, we know that the Lakers are the only team who, they're, they're the only team who didn't send a representative to Sloan over the first seven years. They're going to they're, they're gonna go this year, but they've, they're not viewed as the sharpest tool in the shed anymore. They're not the smartest team, which is something that they always were when you were, they were owned by Jerry Buss. And, and really, kind of, the whole, the Kobe negotiation is just something that, just boggles my mind and just shows this and illustrates this very, very, very much so because, I mean, they basically came out and said, we want to make sure that Kobe's the, best, the highest played player in the league. And I'm like, why? Who are you bidding against? Like, the people who could actually bid against you have no money. So basically, this is, a whole, this is an exercise in ego by Jimmy Buss because, like, he wants to have the highest player. But, I mean, if he just waited out the season, I mean, he could probably have gotten Kobe to come back for, what, maybe $10 million a year? maybe $7 million a year, who's bidding against him? He can actually pay more than anybody else. And, you know, people will say, oh, no, he's earned it. This is not the way you run a business, right? This is not saying you don't pay Kobe, but you don't pay Kobe the ridiculous amount they're actually paying. It's just, it makes no sense. 
Well, yeah, I got I got some flack for some of the tweets I had. You actually included one in your piece, which I appreciated. And I, I one one person commented to me, and it really stuck with me. It was a Twitter comment on that they said, "Oh, well, why don't you take a pay cut at your job?" And my, I was going to respond, and I decided against it. But the basic argument to that is that there's a fundamental difference between most companies and a league where you have a salary cap. And in a team like the Lakers, where you have competitive advantage, is where your money can be used more effectively than other other teams' money. Well, here's the thing. That's me giving a hand to Kobe's agent. You know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with what Kobe did. There's nothing wrong with what his agent did. The Lakers made a stupid offer, right? And basically, Kobe said, sure, I, you want to give me that much money? I'll take that much money. This is not on Kobe, right? So... This is on the fact that, like, his team, right, has lost that edge that they used to have over all the other teams. And really, you know, if I look at the team now, I'm going like, well, there's no, there's no difference between what the Lakers are right now and, the, and what the Knicks are, which is like the team that just makes dumb choices and dumb decisions. And, and, and here's the thing. Like, the fact that they thought that, like, they needed to protect the brand by signing Kobe, it's like the Knicks have sucked for 20 years, right? They've sucked. They've been terrible. The Knicks are licensed to mint money, and the, the, Knicks, the Knicks don't have 16 banners hanging from the Raptors. So the fact that the Lakers actually think that they need to sign one player to protect their, their earnings is just the, the height of stupidity. The Lakers could suck, and they would still be the Lakers, right? And they, they would still own that town. They just really don't quite understand how kind of these things work because, like, you know, just look at the Knicks. They suck. James Dolan is a terrible owner. They still make money hand over fist. You know, and I think you talked about the Nets a little bit. I think the, the, the Nets situation is a little more interesting in the sense that I think the Nets are going to eventually get it because that, that's an ownership group that if you start looking at it, they've, they've gotten it before. I think the problem is they're a little bit like, you know, anybody who's a, a, a soccer fan will understand this. They're a little bit like Chelsea. They have all this money, but they don't quite understand how to spend it yet. But they're going to figure it out. I was thinking in a way they could be more like Manchester City in that they that they spend a lot of money but and eventually maybe it'll work out for a little while and we'll have to see but the only the only point of disagreement and it's a very small one in terms of Kobe and his agent is that if that's what he wanted if what he wanted was to get paid then they did a great job but if what he wanted was to get more championships then he basically sabotaged himself because they're, the Lakers, and I think we're in pretty firm agreement on this, they're now positioned where it's going to take a miracle for them to be a championship contender for as long as Kobe wants to play in the league. Yeah, and, and I mean, if they're, what they're looking at is bringing in Melo. I mean, I, I think somebody had a comment, and I quoted this, like the only way they can win Melo on that team is if the league gives them a special dispensation to use two balls at the same time because it's not going to work. And the, the other thing, it's like, they're playing a, the Lakers are playing a fun style. Mike D'Antoni has this way of playing this fun up-tempo style. And that fun up-tempo style does not work once you stick in a ball-stopping uh, shooter. It didn't work with Melo. It's not going to work with Kobe. It didn't work with Kobe last season. And I think, you know, it, it's, it, it's really strange the way this team is constructed right now. Because I think, you know, you could go one way, which is go with this fun young team and then start rebuilding – and, you know, people are filling the seats. Yeah, they lost the whole cell, but they're starting, they're starting to win. They're starting to be a fun team. But I don't know that it's going to work. You know, how's Kobe going to play at the fastest pace of his career coming off an, uh, uh, an Achilles injury? Exactly. It's a, it's a strange fit in terms of all of that kind of stuff. And the Mellow situation, to me, in a lot of ways, 
that could end up bailing out the Knicks from making a bad decision, which would be a really, I'm not even sure if it counts as irony, but would be a fascinating development in terms of everything. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, both those teams, it's it's really interesting that I said that I think the Knicks are done for the decade because I think they're just in a bad position. And I think the Lakers, weirdly enough, are actually heading in that direction because by tying yourself to this contract, you know, who's coming to play for L.A.? I mean, they're saying, oh, Kevin Durant's going to come or, like, Kevin Love's going to come. It's like, I don't see it. I mean, I could see it happening when it's, when it's you know, Jerry Buss. I'm not seeing it for Jimmy Buss. It's like, like, players don't come to dumb franchises, right? So, like, let me go to a team. You know, it's still L.A., but, like, you know, if the Clippers are all of a sudden the smart franchise in town, that's kind of weird. You know, it's, it's, it's just a complete trope inversion. Well, the other challenge with it is that whether you're talking Kevin Love or you're talking Kevin Durant, you're essentially, if your pitch to them is saying that you're going to have to be the one to recruit the other guys, it's not a situation, because those classes are pretty much one-guy classes, you're not giving them a situation where it's like, hey, you can play with this other elite talent, giving them kind of a Miami 3 situation. So you're telling Kevin Love in 2015, okay, we, have, we might have the money for one guy, and then after that, we have no idea. It's your job to get somebody better to play with. And so if you're comparing that with, playing in Minnesota with Rubio or you're comparing that with whatever other situations are out there, the blank slate is interesting, but it's not the strongest sales pitch. And I think we learned that from Dwight Howard. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's an interesting economy because like someone, and one of my friends asked the question, it's like, what would have happened if, if, the, if the, the Chris Paul trade actually gone down? So if the Chris Paul trade goes down and the Lakers are somehow able to swing the, the Dwight trade, you know, I, ha- I, I just, I don't think it's feasible that, like, Kobe would win the backroom struggle and drive them both out of town. You know, I don't think that's happening. I think Kobe gets driven out of town. And, you know, given how much control he seems to have over the situation now, and, you know, basically they gave him this huge contract not to piss him off, I, I don't know how that would have been played out. Because we know that Chris Ball has the same kind of hold on the Clippers organization now. So it would have been, like, a really interesting struggle. I think, you know, I think it would have been the, the sort of thing, like, books get written about. It really could have been, and I think that one of the one, and I I, wrote, I tweeted about this yesterday is that I feel that this possibility is part of the reason that Dwight left because I'm sure they asked him what are you planning to do with Kobe, and if the answer was we still want to keep him as the highest paid player, then Dwight knew okay I'm not going to be be competing for a championship in in the next two possibly three seasons, so what the rationale for him to stay is a much more complicated rationale when he's not this magnetic personality who can really maximize the marketing opportunities of L.A. So I think if he asked them and they told him the truth, then he had a really good reason to leave. Yeah, people get mad about Dwight, but, I mean, Dwight did the right thing. Dwight looked at his options. He talked to all the teams very respectfully. He took his time to make the decision. He personally met with the owner of the Lakers and informant of the decision in person before leaking it to anybody else. And then he went and signed with a team that he thought was the best option. I think he was very professional about it. People got, like, upset about it, but he got it done fairly quickly. And, I mean, I think, you know, he was way more professional than LeBron announcing it on national television. So, I mean, I think it was, if you know, if I dealt with someone who went like it like that, then I don't see why I would be unhappy about it. I mean, and again, I understand his decision. You know, I could see not wanting to play with Kobe. You know, there's this delusional guy who doesn't want to let go. Why would I want to play with him? You know, I want to win. I'm, I'm going to have much more fun playing with James Harden than I am playing with uh, Kobe Bryant. 
moving moving on to the Derrick Rose situation, if if you were the I guess it'd be the general manager. If you were the general manager of the Bulls, what direction would you want to go in, let's say both for the rest of this year and moving forward? Well, I mean, I think uh, that the the biggest trick is, like, we were talking about this too, and I've talked about this before, which is you don't want to just give your assets away. I do think that trading Deng is a really good possibility because Deng is really – Deng is rightly priced, but he's an expensive piece for what you want to do. So what you want to do if you're, if you're the Bulls, I mean, the two key players for the Black Bulls team are Noah and Butler. That's the two guys you want to keep. Everybody else is expendable. And you don't want to give people away, but you want to, if you can get, like, you know, if, if you can get some, if you can sucker somebody into taking Zhang and giving you a bunch of draft picks and a player, then you go ahead and do it, right? So Because, I mean, they're not winning the title, and I understand that. And I think partly, it isn't just because of the Rose injury. I think it's partly because the way they constructed a team they have no safety net if they lost their point guard, right? So basically you're actually kind of sitting there and just saying that, well, you know, we kind of have to move on and kind of rebuild. And again, I think the trick is when people talk about tanking, right? The problem yeah. with tanking is it's when you tank and just give everything away, you know, if you suck and your roster sucks, one player isn't going to make the difference. Now, however, if you're able to move like one piece for multiple pieces, or multiple assets, then it actually does make some sense. Quick interjection. At this point in the podcast, Arturo and I changed uh, changed locations so that to take some of the background noise out, and he gave a great answer on what was what was different than he expected in the Atlantic specifically, that the Knicks and Nets were worse than expected, and that his model actually in, predicted in its first iteration. But part of that answer was cut, but the second half of the answer I enjoyed so much that I wanted to include it. So here you go. Uh, myself and a friend of mine, we, we put in $50 each on the Celtics, Raptors, and Sixers to win the Atlantic. So we're, we're watching this with very interested, particularly with like Mark, Michael Carter-Williams lighting it up for the Sixers. We're all going like, that's, that, that was a 500 to 1 bet. You know, and, and again, people laugh, but like, you know, hey, if that comes in, you know, I already told my wife I'm thinking of Europe. Yeah, 500 to 1, that's incredible. You know, we were like, no, you know, you know, we were saying like, you know, obviously we thought like it's going to, we didn't think everything was going to fall into place like that. And but I mean we thought the Sixers were better, and we we, we said that that they were better than that. And, and I've watched a lot of the games. You know they'll they'll get blown out once in a while because they're a young team, but they play right. I mean they're they're very well coached. Michael Carter Williams is if it, people who have not seen Michael Carter Williams need to watch him because that kid is just it, he's the truth. I mean that kid, you know he does the kind of thing that LeBron does, where like you know the the center will be going up for layup and and he'll come up from behind and just block him from behind. You're like how in the world did he get to that ball? They're playing the Pacers, and they, the the Brett Brown had him covering uh, Paul George to stop him. He was actually bothering the hell out of Paul George because he's so long and so uh, and so athletic. So it, it's a really interesting team, and and you, you kind of figure like yeah, and they got the guy who should have been the number one pick like sitting on the bench, and they got a bunch of these guys who are not playing. So you know that that, that that's if that team actually if, if the Sixers decide they wanted to win the Atlantic, they could win the Atlantic. I mean, I think it's the same thing with the Celtics. I think the Celtics decide that they're going to try to compete. They, 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 can win, they can win that division. Now, it might be 41 wins winning that division, but they can win that division. Yeah, and it's, it's the question that was persisting before the season happens now is teams need to, in certain circumstances, make a decision about whether they're buyers or sellers, which is unusual because usually I would say it gets dictated by circumstance, but I think we're going to have a couple teams that will really have the choice if they want to. Well, I mean, I, I love, and I had this huge argument with, like, Buck fans at the beginning of the season where that team was, like, buying or selling, and I was like, that team's selling. They're like, no, 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 that team is selling. 
And it's very clear when you start looking at their moves that they've been selling for a while now, and they're kind of building. And I, and I understand why they're doing it. They've got a strategy in place, and it makes it makes sense for them. They're, they're, they're building young. They're trying to get draft picks and get young because, you know, you're a small market team. That's what you have to do. Uh, but you have to kind of convince your fans that you're still trying to win, so you got to make it fun for them so they actually spend some money. So it, it, where you got somebody like the, the Celtics, the Celtics kind of, you know, they, they went out and they sold what they call, they sold a bill of goods to the Nets. They basically, you know, they gave all these expiring assets. Let's call them like older assets to the, the Nets. And, and basically the Nets are now they've got all these graphics from the Nets, which will look to be like possibly lottery picks for the next few years. Plus, they've got all these pieces that they can move, and then all these young guys, and they've got Rondo coming back. So they're in a really interesting position. They could be competitive, particularly if they find the right trade partner. Now, the choice is, do you want to compete this year, or do you want to kind of, like, not really just keep the, the young guys out there, get them some experience, and then get a decent draft pick and put in that team? They, they have options, right? So I'd much rather be the Celtics than the Lakers right now, you know, because I think, obviously, I think, one, I think they're ver- the, the Celtics are have a much smarter core running that team. I think Danny Ainge is great. I think the guys around Danny Ainge are great in terms of how they run that team. And, and they, they're not sentimental about things. Danny Ainge would never pay, like, you know, he, he demonstrated, he basically instead of paying Paul Pierce, he just kind of he, he wished him well on his way on his way out and, and, and send him out, and, and he moved it. And that's kind of what you have to do. And particularly with this new um, the CBA, where, like, you really can't afford to spend all this money in the long term, because you, you have a limited amount of money you can actually you know put to players, you have to be really smart about assets. And once your assets are past a certain point, you know once these players get to a certain age, you, you just have to think that I, there's no way I can afford to keep this guy. I need to trade him for something. You know, I need instead of spending twenty million dollars, twenty five million dollars on one player, maybe I can spend like twenty five million dollars on four or five players, right? And then find one or two of them that are going to be good. You know, you keep rolling your the dice until you actually get some guys that actually work. And I think this is where people kind of are disconnected because they still think we're operating under the old rules, and we're really not. You know, you can't, you can't, you can't do what the Nets did, right, in the long term. The other part of that dynamic is that there are still a number of people in general manager and decision making capacities that are still treating it like the old CBA or like a different thing. With the Knicks being a classic example of that, Ujiri, as soon as Ujiri got to Toronto, he said, hey, let's see, who who might want Bargnani? Because they realized that that didn't fit with their system. And so there's still, there's still teams and there's still general managers that can be go-tos for the savvy ones to offload the pieces that don't make sense for their vision and actually get assets for them when they don't even need assets. Yeah, they're always going to be suckers. You know, you, that's the, and there are always going to be teams that are smarter than other teams, you know, and, and I think that's, that's it's always going to be the history of any professional sport. I mean, I think teams are going to get smarter as we move along, and I think that's coming. Teams are moving in that direction. Teams are getting, uh, you know, better at this. But there's always going to be an advantage to be had, right? So, and I was talking about this, and it's the same thing for gambling. It's like once you figure out, you know, what is, you know, what is the misconception that people have, that's what you can go against. And I think... The Knicks value points. They always have. And, and this is to the detriment, and this is what they always do. We call it this. It's, it's on the – and I forget who – I'm sorry for not giving you – I think it's Ethan who came up with the yay, point, yay points thesis, which is like, you know, it's like, you know, the guy, oh, look, he's, he's shiny. He scores. Well, that's the way the Knicks build the teams. You know, it's like, you know, their problems were defensive. But, yeah, let's get more guys who can actually shut the ball. And I think, you know, when you look at that team – it's just, you know, and, and I said this before the season that, you know, they were going to be something just truly horrible to watch on defense. And and I actually kind of, I was telling somebody that it, it's an acid test for 
for for good offensive teams. If you're a good offensive team and you play the Knicks, you know you kill them because all you need to do to beat the Knicks is you need just need to make them move around. If if you let them stand there by running ISO plays, you know Bargnani isn't bad if you go straight at him. Now, if you make him move his feet, he, uh, he's a complete disaster. He can't. Deadspin had a great post about how Bargnani can't control his limbs, right? <laughs> and, and, and the same thing in Amari, they just get lost. I mean, so if you, it's like, so the, so like the Spurs pick and roll this. They were just like they pick and roll them to death. It was, it was just insane. And you know where I, where I, where this, where I'm going with this is like when I watch somebody like Indiana, I worry about Indiana because Indiana had a lot of trouble kind of scoring on this Knicks team. I'm going like, you know this. You should be smarter than this on offense if you want to win the title, right? I'm not saying like it, this is an issue of skill. This is an issue of kind of like you know, hey, there's there's certain things you should be smart enough to do against this team that are going to work. I mean, they're a bad defensive team. You can beat them by doing certain things. And they're the Pacers are an interesting place because obvi- obviously they're great defensively and they've had all that, but their offense isn't dynamic in the sense that I I would say against a great team and you're going to have to beat great teams to win a title that you say okay they're going to be good enough here to definitely make them the favorite in the series. Yeah, I mean I think I think the problem with that I mean part, they're partly a feature of the schedule in the sense of like and it's not full of their own. I mean they play the guys who get in front of them, but their schedule is the weakest and it's got it's it's projecting to be the weakest uh in the league actually. It's been the weakest so far, it's going to be the weakest in the league. So they're they're going to they're going to win like 60 60 odd some games, but they're not going to be like when you look at it really, they're not going to be that strong. And I think what's going to be interesting about that is you're saying, I mean, do I think the Pacers could beat San Antonio? No. Do I think the Pacers could beat the Clippers? I think that'd be interesting. I, I think, can they beat the Heat? I don't think so right now because from what I've seen from watching them is like they have some flaws and the flaws that they have are some serious flaws. I mean, they can be taken out of their offensive game. And again, you can beat their defense if you play smart, right? So you have to make your shots when you play, right? But there are teams that can do it, and I, I think, you know, if if I'm if I'm Indiana, really, what they what they should have gone out and gotten is like they really need an additional shooter, right? So it, it, it's one of those, you know, it, 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 Indiana is interesting because I think they they. I'm again. I'm not convinced yet. I need to see them do it against like a good, healthy team, right? And and right now, interestingly enough, I mean, I think their next test, their next real test, is when they play San Antonio, right? So so we're about to get some interesting games here now. It's like we've got that. We've got OKC playing San Antonio, so I, so so we're gonna get some. Hopefully, we'll get some answers, and hopefully, like these guys, these teams won't be injured. Like we've had a couple games that I've been like circling on the schedule, and then like you know half the people are out when you get there. Like it was Golden State was is playing Portland. And I was like, oh, let's see if Portland's for real. But, like, no, Iggy's out and Curry's injured. And, you know, so we're not really going to get a feel for Portland as of yet. And that's really, to me, is the the crazy thing with, that's happened with the Warriors is that they have – I think that when they've had their top five healthy, they've been a really good team. They've been better than I even expected. But we have to be skeptical of how long that's going to happen. Well, I mean, I think – I don't know if you read my preseason review of the Warriors. That was exactly it. I said, look, if this team is healthy, they're great. But my model is looking at them and going like, no, they're not going to be healthy, right? You're, you're not going to have Curry available for 82 games. You know, Bogut's an injury waiting to happen. And, and, and you kind of have to figure these things in. It's, I think it's a team that, in, you know, it's going to be on the lower half. And, and when I say the lower half of the West – Lower half of the West is going to be like 52, 53 wins, right? So they're going to be like in that second half of the West. And if they're healthy, they can beat somebody in the first round. But they're going to have a real trouble getting the home field, the home court advantage in the first round. 
what I've been thinking about covering the team and being around them a lot is how much of a benefit they would have being in the Eastern Conference, because not only would they be playing worse teams, but they would be able to keep their seeding afloat because everybody else is so terrible, but they play in the West where they have very little margin for error. You know, here's the thing. A couple of things that I've noticed is, like, people are discounting how good the, the top teams are really, really good this year. Like, like Miami and San Antonio are still the class of the league by far. Basically, Miami and San Antonio right now are treating the regular season. Like, they're, they're basically, if you look the way they're, they're, they're substituting people out, the way they're not really playing heavy minutes, and they're just toying with teams. I mean, like, Miami's just giving half their team the night off. They're like, no, no, wait, don't, don't even bother to show up. No, 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 stay on the bench. And, like, the same thing as, like, I was reading the, the Spurs beat writers, and they were arguing, like, like Tony Parker was trying to convince, like, uh, Pop to let, let him into the game, and Pop wasn't having it. So it's like, it, these teams are really, really good, and they're really in the next level. And I think we forget what we saw in those finals, and... You know, it, it's to me. It's been interesting. Every time I, I don't know, I don't know if that happened to you. Every time I watch the Spurs, they look like they're just trying to destroy people. Like they're they're not they're not having it. They're like, you know, I was uh, talking about Thiago Splitters. Like Thiago Splitter looks at people and goes, like, "You're not LeBron James. I don't need to be scared of you. I can just go through you." And and this is this is a way different kind of thing for that team. Again, I, as I said, I think that's the difference between these top teams and everybody else is is, is going to be kind of stark this year like there's going to be teams that are just going to be getting blown in blown out every single night and that's why I'm really excited to see the Spurs Thunder game this week because the big difference between the last time these teams went at it in a playoff series full strength was Kawhi Leonard and if Kawhi can be not a Durant stopper I think that's a crazy that's that that's not going to happen but if he can slow down Durant that makes the Thunder a very different team than the Thunder team that that was so dominant in those, those last few games against the Spurs. Two you years should ago. go back and watch that series. You really should go back and watch that series because Kawhi Leonard was fantastic in that series. Like you, you really should go back and watch it because he was hitting big shots. He was making steals. He was trying to keep the Spurs in the game. It's everybody else ran out of steam in that series, but but Kawhi Leonard was fantastic in that series. It's the kind of thing that Kawhi does where he's making all the big plays and he's like he's like starting to make the big shot and and it can be kind of you know unless you're watching for it you don't see it but Kawhi generally like the thing I always loved about him is like the bigger the stage the, be- the better he plays right so it's like you know I'm not at this point he's 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 earned the respect for me is like I, I expect him to play well in any any and all playoff series and any and all big games you know it's it's it, that he's that kind of player. I think what's interesting too for me in terms of if I'm looking at the Thunder is, you know, they still have they still have the Perkins problem, right? So they they really you know they they've looked in. I think they have something possibly with Stephen Adams, and they really need to play him more. You know, they really if I'm them, I mean, every time I'm playing a scrub, I would be playing Adams 30, 35 minutes and get him some experience because I think they need to kind of figure out their situation at center because if they're rolling with Kendrick Perkins against the Spurs, they're going to get destroyed. They are. The thing that I've been thinking about a lot with the Spurs, and it's more of a big picture thing, but I'd be interested in your take on it, is that when you look at the way that Parker and Duncan and all of them have handled their contracts, they've kind of handled it like they're three, eight guys that are aging together. But Parker is 31. He's turning 32 kind of around the start of the playoffs. Do you think that he could end up, if he wants to, do you think he'll be a bridge between this era and the next one? Or do you like, or will he just kind of say, I've done what I needed to do? Well, I mean, I think he's gonna he's going to be the elder statesman on that team. I do think he sticks around. I think what's interesting is the the next era for this team is already there, 
And I think, you know, and this is one of the things I, I talked about when they when they lost to the Thunder two years ago in the in the Western Conference Finals. I think when I looked at it initially, I said, well, they have more, that team has more experience than the Thunder, so they're going to win that series. And I think what happened was it was the opposite because the guys who were critical for the for the uh, the Spurs were Splitter and Kawhi and Danny Green and these guys kind of faded in that series. And I think you know the next time around, like the last year, the, these guys had the experience and they went on and they went all the way to the finals. And now they've now now they've not only gone through that, they've also gone through that finals where like you know they came so close to winning. And I think if you look back at the history of teams that come so close to winning, right, who are so competitive, come so close. They come back better the year after. So, I mean, if you look at, for example, you remember the Lakers in 2009, how they just went through the league? Well, this is kind of the thing that we're seeing. It's like when you get into that second year, like Timmy, Tim Duncan hasn't been playing that well. But when you get into that, those second guys like Splitter and Green and, uh, and Kawhi, just basically, you know, you put them out there and they're just kind of just working through people. And I think that's, you know, that's the difference. They have that experience. They've gone through that battle. They've gone through the finals. And, like, you know, they, they've gone through the big games. They, they, they've already battle-tested. So getting back to your question about Parker, I think Parker is an interesting bridge because I think the core moves on. I mean, I think this team is moving to the point where, like, you know, the crunch time might actually end up being, you know, it might actually end up being Parker and Green and, and Kawhi and Splitter and maybe even Barth Diaw as opposed to even Tim Duncan. It's going to depend. I mean, Tim Duncan might end up being a bench player for these guys, right? Great bench player to have, but, I mean, like, it, it, it's kind of a really big – paradigm shift and I think the thing is if, if Splitter is consistent then I know Pop's going to think about it and and he's the guy all of those guys are, it seems like are willing enough to take a different step if that's what's necessary to have the team win yeah. and that's a big change you know and I think there's an interesting juxtaposition with that and with what happened with Kobe I, I tweeted and it's true that as, as it stands right now Kobe's going to get paid as much as Parker and Duncan combined and I think that there's a personality difference that any of those guys, and we'll have to see whether it actually manifests itself. I mean, comparing it's comparing apples and oranges. That team is the smartest run team in the league. And actually, and again, if I if I and I've been saying this, if I have to pick, it's it's going to be San Antonio and Miami again. I, I mean, I, there's nothing I've seen so far this season that makes me think it's not going to be San Antonio and Miami. And in fact, there's nothing I've seen that makes me think that it's not going to be San Antonio over Miami this season. Because I do think it's one of those things where, like, we'll get the rematch, and I think Miami, like, I think San Antonio will outlast them this time. They're, they, weirdly, San Antonio is the younger, hungrier team at this point. Do you feel that the, the Timberwolves will be a decent playoff team? I think they've been. I think they've shown that they're a remarkable regular season team. But do you feel like from when you've watched them and what you've seen in terms of the data that they'll be a respectable playoff team? They're a good one-way team, and when I say that, they're they're really good offensively. Their defense leaves something to be lacking. I think the trade they just made is a move in the right direction for them in terms of what they need. You know, they're the kind of team that, you know, their their ceiling based on history is winning a playoff series, right? You know, let's let's speculate a little bit. Let's say they're the fifth seed, right? So so if they're the fifth seed, they're looking at what? You know, they're maybe looking at, you know, they may be looking at Golden State. They may be looking, oh, God, they might be looking. Houston or Dallas. Houston or Dallas in, in round one. And, I, you know, if it's Dallas, I mean, the, I think Dallas and Houston both take care of that team. I think T-Wolves are going to be scrappy, but it's going to depend on who their opponent is. If they're playing somebody like one of those teams that, that has the experience, and, and experience actually, statistically, experience matters in the playoffs. 
So having a team that's like, you know, all playoff virgins, eh, it's going it's to be really sad. I mean, if, if you're going against a team like Houston that has guys who've been to the finals, right, and the same thing with, with Dallas, who has guys who actually won it all, then it's going to be really hard for uh, for uh, Minnesota. So I, I see them kind of, you know, they, they, this is their season for them to get their beak wet. You know, get to the, get to the playoffs, get some experience under your belt. I don't necessarily see them making any noise. And that also works to help try to convince Kevin Love to stay longer than next year, which is such a huge pivot point for that franchise moving forward. I don't think he's staying. I mean, I don't know. I mean, history, t- history tells us that assets move to where they have the most value. Kevin Love does not have the most value to the league or to himself in Minnesota. And people are hating me saying that, but it's the truth. I mean, same thing. It's like, I don't think Kevin Durant stays his career in Oklahoma City. You know, he's, he's going to move to a larger market because he will have more value Right, you know, overall by moving to a larger market, you know, same thing with Ron. He moved to Miami. He has more value in Miami. You know, it's 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 history of the league is that even with the new CBA, that's just a matter of like, you know, it's where assets have the most value to the league. You know, so again, I don't see Kevin Love staying, and you know, I you know, I, does he go to LA? Well, I don't know about that, but I mean, like, I don't see him staying in uh, in Minnesota. The other dynamic that I've been thinking about, and I was looking at your power rankings, and I think this fits in well, is that the t- if you look at overperforming versus underperforming teams, to me, all of the teams that I would have said before the season have the best coaches in the league, Dallas, San Antonio, Miami, you know, all of those coaches, Phil, all, of those teams are, Phil, all of those teams are doing really well. And that all of the teams that are underperforming in that sense, uh, injuries could be a part of it, but they're all teams that don't have those elite coaches. Yeah, and actually it's a little bit of an indictment to uh, Kevin McHale, actually, because you know where I thought that he was going to be, and he was actually quite good last year. But I think it's an interesting dichotomy in the sense that I don't necessarily, I don't think it's him. I think it's the, uh, the front office that's really smart. I think he's not quite that smart, or he hasn't shown it, so it actually kind of shows. And, and you have a point. I mean, you can tell when you're watching, you know, and I've said this, the Wizards, let's talk about the Wizards for a second. The Wizards should be a good team, right? You look at the Wizards, they've got Beal from three, they've got Nene in the post, they've got Wall driving. These three things, when you watch a game, are pretty much unstoppable on offense. With these three things, you should be able to build an effective offense. And I watch this team, and I go, they, they go for stretches where they're doing such dumb things that you're going, like, what in the world? Their coach is terrible, right? So, so the Wizards are, are, you know, they can beat anybody on any given night, but it's a matter of, like, are they going to call the right play? You know, we generally say that coaching doesn't make the players better. Coaching doesn't really matter that much because generally, you know, there's, there's a certain level that they play at. I've come to the conclusion that bad coaching does matter. Like, so having a really bad coach can be a real problem, right? So that's – and, again, I, I do think that having a great coach that gets people playing right is important. But, again, you know, the, the margin isn't that – you know, the margin isn't as great as people like to say, except when you have a really bad coach, though. Yeah, and I think that the, as somebody who covered the Wizards at the end of last year when Wall came back, his success seemed to be in spite of their schemes, not in because of it. And he, I think that in some ways he could be a much better player if he had a general manager and a coach that said, okay, this is what we have. How do we maximize this talent that we have? But, but as I said, they, they, it's like they have it, – I, I compare it to playing Street Fighter, right? You ever play Street Fighter? Yes. And so, you know, Rue, you've got the fireball, you've got the shuriken, you've got the flying kick, right? Mm-hmm. And you want to combine those things into an offense. Like, you don't want to be doing, like, you know, you don't want to be doing dumb stuff like throwing kicks in the air. So it's the same thing with the Wizards. Like, why in the world are, are, you, are you having Bradley Beal drive and take, like, 
10 footers. What the hell? Just have him just have him sit in the corner, right? And when when Nane is in the post, if he gets double, just pass it to him and have him sink the bucket, right? Or have, and, or have like Wall in the other corner getting ready to drive or have him drive and pop off. Every time like I've watched like 5 minute periods where like they just give Nene the ball at the end of the game. Why are all these games where like the, the Wizards are down ten points and they come back and tie? Because they just give Nene the ball at the end. Like the other team has no answer for Nene in the post. And I'm like, but why don't you just do that thirty times a game, right? So it, it, it's a really kind of you know, it, it's it, teams get too cute for their own good sometimes, right? And and I think and they they outsmart themselves. And I think the smarter teams, as I said, you know, it's like if you're a really smart team, it's like you know, hey, if the Knicks can't cope with the pick and roll. Just run the pick and roll at them, right? It's like don't don't get too cute. Just keep doing keep doing it until they stop it. You know, if you keep throwing a punch and they don't stop it, you keep throwing that punch. And the reverse of that, to having covered them, is the Warriors. The Warriors have, for whatever reason, in recent the, la, the particularly this whole year, they've gone away from their offense in the fourth quarter and gone to things that make way less sense. Yeah. Oh, it's 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 a common failing. I mean, like uh, we used to get, I used to get on Hall, Lionel Hollins for the Memphis before that because he'd run like he start going into ISO offense, and you're like, what what in the world are you doing? You have Fagasol, like Marcus All there, just pass him the ball on the block and and get out of the way and have him get to the line. I mean, you've got a lead, and and teams just you know it's equivalent to playing prevent prevent off prevent defense in football. You know how people say like you prevent you play prevent defense and you prevent yourself from winning. It's the same thing. It's like don't don't get too cute. You know, you keep running your offense, process, process, process. If you watch somebody like the Spurs, the Spurs run their offense. They run their offense. They keep running their offense, and they trust. Even when the shots aren't falling, they trust that their process is going to work. And I always remember the clutch study that they did uh, for Troop where they studied, like, you know, the, the difference between, you know, that the teams that had Chris Paul, right, were the most efficient in the clutch because – and it wasn't because Chris Paul was taking all the shots. It was because Chris Paul was running his offense and passing the ball to the open man, you know. What a stunner. Pass the ball to the open man, you can win. And it's the difference between LeBron when he was on the Cavs and LeBron when he's on the Heat. That LeBron, he didn't have anybody to pass the ball to when he was on the Cavs. And with the Heat, they have more options. Yeah, no, and, and, and again, it's you run the team, you run the offense, and, and, and you trust the process. So I'll let you out with one last question, which is, what are you looking forward to most, let's say, for the next month or two in terms of teams that we're going to find out on? Are there teams that you think are going to do a lot better and things like that? You know, I'm actually curious about how the bottom of the uh, the East is going to play out. And I think I think there's a move coming. I think there's a few moves coming. I think the Celtics are going to make some moves, I think. And more than these, I'm also like Sacramento is going to make some moves. There are some teams that are going to make some moves, and it's going to be interesting thing where the dominoes fall. Because, again, as I said, I think there's going to be some movement. I think the other thing that's going to play out is, you know, who's going to survive the death match in the West? You know, because I think it's going to be kind of crazy. Because, as I said, I think there's going to be like a 50-win team that's going to be out. And it's going to be a really good 50-win team. You know, it, like... And I ain't saying this, you know, would you be surprised if the Warriors won 51 games and finished with a ninth seed? Not at all. I, I wouldn't be, especially with their injury history, I wouldn't be surprised to see them play really well when they have full strength and just not be at full strength enough. Yeah, and, and I think that's going to be kind of interesting, as I said, because, I, I, again, there's going to be some, a really bad team from the West East. Is, like a sub-500 team is going to make the playoffs in the East. Right, so it's kind of like, you know, round one, we're joking about this, which is like round one in the East is going to be on the, there's, no, there's not going to be anything in round one in the East that you're going to want, going to want to watch on your television, right? It's, it's going to be terrible. Like the, the Heat are going to get a patsy, the Pacers are going to get a patsy, 
the Hawks are the Hawks, and the Hawks are unwatchable. When we get to, we might we might get another Hawks Magic series. Wouldn't that be fun? You know, and and again, it, it's whereas the West, you know, there isn't going to be like a dud in the, the all the West matchups are going to be fantastic. I, I, I mean, I think I think and I think you know it keeps happening every year, but. You know, I do think there, there's a real argument to be made for, like, seeding across the conferences as opposed to how, how we do it now. And and also, I think the part that's going to be more grating to people than even that a sub-500 team might make it in the East is the is how weak the four-seed or the three-seed is going to be. It's not, it's not even a situation where, you know, oh, well, like, the Bucks snuck in and they weren't any good. It's going to be a situation where there's a team that's going to host a playoff series or be the five-seed that it wouldn't even come close to making the playoffs in the West. If, and I think that's more egregious than one team. If, if we had the playoffs today, the Raptors would be the four-seed. Yeah. And the Raptors, the Raptors are terrible. Actually, here's the thing. The Raptors are terrible, but I think the Raptors – I keep thinking that the Raptors are going to make a move. I mean, I think part of their showcasing Rudy and and Demar, and they're going to make a move. I I can't see Masai kind of keeping those two. It, it just it boggles my mind because it, it it is the most anti kind of any analytics team when you have Demar and uh, and and Rudy on your team. It, it's just it, it just you know. Uh. I, I fully expect for them to take advantage of guys that other teams will perceive as assets and do something with that. I don't know who I don't know what the moves are going to be. People have asked me that before because I keep on thinking that they're going to trade a bunch of guys, but I'm sure that they're they're going to find value there because there are probably two or three teams that really like a bunch of the pieces they have, and all they have to do is find those teams. Whether it's playing against each other or just making the move before you play them against each other, how about a trade? Just have to go. How about a trade with Gay and Deng as principals? I, I don't think that the Bulls want to commit long-term money to Rudy Gay. I think that I think it's interesting conceptually. I think that his his offense would be fascinating on a post Rose like this year. But I don't see. I, I also see Thibodeau just killing him. Yeah, I think Thibodeau throws his body in front of that one. But it'd be interesting if you, if, if your set of goals to tank. I'd have to see what the contracts are for that one. But that's kind of that's an interesting thought to put down. I mean, I think again. I think gay, gay is interesting because any team that's smart is not going to sign him, and 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 it's like who are your choices at this point? Do you call do you call the Knicks and kind of pitch it, and like what are you pitching to the Knicks if you do that? I mean, it's kind of it's an interesting kind of story. Well, I I think you call the Nets. I think that's the team you call, and you see because if they Pierce is expiring from what I believe, so if they want to do Pierce and they don't have many assets left, but I I think that they're a team that you call that's no matter what if you Rudy Gay. So are you thinking are you thinking Pierce are you thinking Pierce and Johnson for Rudy and Demar? I don't think they trade. I don't think the 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 Raptors want anything to do with Joe Johnson. So I think they tried to do Pierce. Pierce for Rudy, and then whatever potential assets they could get, whether it be something as small as Sean Livingston or something bigger. That's that's actually I think I think here's the thing I think Pierce on the Raptors the Raptors can actually win the uh, can actually be pretty good I, I think Pierce isn't quite as done I think as long as you can get him on a team where he doesn't have to carry the load and I think a, you know a young team like the Raptors might actually work. If not, we can have some fun jerseys to put up with. Like, the, it, 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 there's a great picture. I think it's uh, it's a Lodge one. No, is it Ewing and a Raptors jersey and a Lodge one? And I forget the jerseys. And oh god, it, it's probably Ewing and a Magic jersey and a Lodge one. There you go. Raptors. Exactly. There's a great picture of them guarding each other in that, which is just kind of jarring and off-putting. And then we can get like we get like Pierce on a, a Raptors jersey and then like guarding our net on in, in a Nets jersey. That would be fairly jarring. 
The other heavy sleeper that I want to have out here in the podcast in case this ends up happening is I feel like the Bobcats are going to make a move that's going to make all of our heads explode. And it could be Rudy Gay. It's going to be something where they just fall in love with the guy and they think they're contenders and they just do it and all of us just go crazy you know, about it. We spent 20 minutes arguing about how who would have paid for Kobe. Uh, who, who, could, who, could, who would have paid Kobe max money to go to their team? And you know who the only name we came up with was? MJ, probably. MJ. He had the, he had the money and the opportunity. And we were like, well, they're the only guy. Because, like, I mean, I think Cubes has the money, but Cubes not, wasn't, wasn't paying Kobe. And, and I think everybody else, like Sixers are too smart. And, I mean, it's just you start walking down the list, and it, nobody's going to – Milwaukee's not doing that. He's not going to Milwaukee. So it's like MJ. I think I – think, here's the thing that's interesting about Charlotte. I like that Charlotte team. I think that Charlotte team is fun, and they're, they're, they're one of those teams. It's a great leap pass team. I don't think they're going anywhere the way they're currently constructed, but they're fun. I mean, I think they're young. I think it's a team that, if left to their own devices, could actually be decent in the next few years. Like, they could hover around 500. If they get an additional piece, they could be good. But but you're right. I think they're, that this is the time when Michael Jordan steps in and does something stupid. I, I, I agree with you. So we'll have to see all, how all that plays out. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Arturo Galetti for coming on. If you want to read more from him, he's at boxscoregeeks.com, or you can follow him on Twitter, at Arturo Galetti. I'd also like to thank Bob McChesney, who you can read as Elrod Enchilada on realgm.com. I'd also like to thank Jared Trace and Stuart Lehman-Brown for their contribution to the music that you can hear at the beginning and end of this episode, and episodes for a long time to come. I really appreciate it. They do great work. And I'd also like to thank all of you for listening. If you want to make the show better, you want to contribute anything, comments, criticism, it's all welcome. You can send them to me on Twitter, at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. Or you can email them, daniel.larue at realgm.com. Thank you so much for listening. Always appreciate the responses. And so have a great Thanksgiving break and go out and make it a great day. guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolor paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 400,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how.